At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KV industry. I am Bryony Smith, your co-host, chair of the ARBA Standards Committee, and as with every episode, I am joined by the globetrotting and garrulous Alan Messick. Alan, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. And speaking of globetrotting, we both did some globetrotting uh, just last weekend up there in Alaska. Yes, we did. And that was a it was a fun weekend. Uh, it's so cool to see the energy up there and the quality of rabbits. It's just it blows my mind to go up there. It's, I've, I hadn't been up there in 12 years. And to see the quality of rabbits, those people really, for being as geographically isolated, they, they put a lot of effort into, you know, investing in good rabbits and then being really strict about what they keep. It was really impressive. It, exactly. That impressed me, too. It wasn't, oh, hey, let's bring this to Alaska just so people can look at it. I mean people really wanted feedback about the good and bad traits of their herd. They really are very intentional about strictly culling, about only bringing up the very best. Um, and we saw some really nice rabbits. I know a few of them are entered in Reno and I think could be very competitive. Oh my gosh. Well, you and I, you know, I love when, when a best in show is done in A and B and then the judges get together and we're like, wow, we picked the same thing. You and I, both were like, well, that Hall Love was was dynamite, and she was she could have competed anywhere in the country and done well. And I'm excited to hear that 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 youth breeder is bringing her all the way to Reno. I hope she stays in coat. So apparently, I um, that family drove me back to Anchorage after the show in Palmer, and she is the third sister in a litter to have won best in shows. Um, I guess they kind of have been taking turns one sister was winning and then another sister came up and she is actually the third from a litter of holland lops to just really hit her prime and start blowing the tables up to have that consistency in a holland lop litter of all things like oh my god yeah that's that's pretty amazing yes yes it is so yeah it was fun it was good to meet people and get our hands in those rabbits. We're really looking forward to seeing some of our new and old friends from Alaska and Reno, and it'll be a good time. Totally. And we're going to have a podcast coming up on Alaska with uh, April Wright. She's going to join us and she's a judge from up there. Of course, we saw her last weekend and she organized the show. So it'll be fun to hear her perspective uh, growing up in rabbits up there and raising rabbits in some of the most extreme environments and, and being quite successful with rabbits and then being a cheerleader for the for the industry 
uh, up there too. So I'm looking forward to that. And I just got to share a funny story. I don't, I don't think I, I think I did tell you maybe in text, but so Avi, you know, my boyfriend came up from uh, Orange County with me and we made a little, little longer weekend out of the trip. So uh, <laughs> during the judging, you know, he's not a rabbit person, but uh, he came up to me and he has like this panic look on his face and he normally doesn't come over to the rabbit show table. Usually he just kind of finds out, finds things for him, him to do, but he had this like look on his face and he goes, Alan, 911. I'm like, what, what? I, I, I thought he was like, maybe interested in some like blanc dodos I was judging. And he's like, uh, so I just uh, got an email from the Airbnb house because we, we rented a cabin up in Denali National Park. We hadn't been there yet. And he's like, uh, she mentioned that the shower was seven miles away at a gas station and to not flush toilet paper because it's an outhouse. And I'm like, uh, any chance that was in the Airbnb description and we may have missed it? And he's like, uh, yeah. So we couldn't get out of it. <laughs> so we drove after the show three and a half hours to the little cabin in the woods. It was actually super cute. No running water. <laughs> we had to go outside to use the bathroom. Uh, but it was it was actually it was actually very, very fun. And then we ended up taking one of the nights and driving up to China Hot Springs and staying in a, a resort just so we could have a shower because that <laughs> seven mile thing to the gas station just wasn't happening. So did you see the northern lights at all? Yeah, we actually did. Uh, you know, it was cloudy when we were there judging. It was and mm-hmm. it got worse when we went up north. Um, but we took a chance. We went all the way to Fairbanks, stayed at China Hot Springs, which is this incredible, uh, you know, like natural, super hot spring. And you could it's a, like an Olympic-sized pool you can go into. And we were there out in, until midnight. And for like three minutes, the clouds opened up. And I'm like, oh, my God, look, it's. I think that's it. And he's like, oh. Oh my God. Yeah. We watched them for like, like three minutes, but they were dancing across the sky and a beautiful green color. And yeah, it was the first time I've ever seen them. So it was oh, well wow. worth the, 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 the mega drive to Fairbanks uh, and to see them from China Hot Springs. <laughs> it was fun. So I learned a lot from Uber drivers while I was there. Like I, they're apparently, I mean, obviously a lot of people visit Anchorage for tour, tourism. So they were giving me the rundown about all of this. And the first one I had the night I flew in, he was like, yeah, everyone goes up to Fairbanks to see the Northern Lights, but you can see him from here. They come back here. They're like, <laughs> uh, you can see him here. He's like, I think that's just their thing. I don't think he was really a fan of Fairbanks. Um, I really did want to see the Aurora because I never have either. And of course it was cloudy the whole time I was in Anchorage. I did not get to have an extended trip, although I didn't fly out until I know. And but I had a bathroom the whole time with running water, and I I don't know, me being me, yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) I flew out Monday evening, and I went sightseeing in Anchorage on Monday, and it was a night flight. It ended up being a little bit late. We left at like ten forty-five, so. Um, I mostly, I just wanted to sleep. There was a guy two rows ahead of me who would not shut up because there's one of those on every flight. Um, Uh, you know, the lights are out, everyone else is snoring and this guy is going on about spaghetti sauce jars for some reason. I'm not even joking. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of drifting off and then the pilot comes on and says, Hey, for those of you on the left side of the plane, the Northern lights are actually visible tonight. So that was worth it. And I was on the left side of the plane. So I woke up and I got to see them too. And they were a beautiful yellow green and it was pretty cool. They kind of looked like they were floating in between the airplane and the ground, although I'm sure they weren't, but it was cool. That is so cool. You, I'm sure you had a better view up there than, than we did down in, in Fairbanks. That's, I didn't know you had that, that opportunity. Did, did everyone like rush to the left side of the plane when, it, when he said that? No, I mean, I don't think anybody got up, but I think those of us who are like in the left window seats, I mean, I know like I pressed my face to the window. And I tried to take a picture, but the lights in the plane really just, you couldn't get it on like 
phone camera, but I had like my hands around my eyes and I was looking for as long as you could see him. And <laughs> then I sacked out again. All uh, right. Well, I'm glad you got to see that because we really wanted you to join us up there in, in Denali, but didn't work with your schedule. So at least you got to see the lights. Yeah, that, that was, was nice. Very important part of Alaska. Shortly Very after cool. Mr. So, 21C shut up and then a baby <laughs> started in. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. I'd almost rather have a baby than a talker because at least the, you're not like paying attention to the words from a baby. It's just like screaming. Oh well, yeah. I, I mean, it's that. not intentional. It's like, it's, you know, it'll wake you up, but it's not intentional. The talker, you're an adult, you know, better be quiet now. <laughs> oh man. Well, everyone, we want to thank you for listening. This is episode 43. Cannot believe that we are at 43 already. We've got loads more coming for you. And don't forget to follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. It will continue to serve as our hub each and every week for podcast episodes. And you can also find links to previous episodes, all 43 of them now, um, on the Rabbitry page. So make sure you like it. One of my favorite parts of the day is after all of the rabbits are fed and I just take a few minutes in the barn to enjoy them hopping around, eating, thriving, and just enjoying their best life. Yeah, especially this time of year, Brian, you know, when we're getting ready for convention and the big show, watching all those happy rabbits eating, and there's nothing better than that sign of peace and tranquility. And of course, clean rows and cages full of happy rabbits mean show-winning rabbits. And having well-designed cages makes a huge difference in that. And I can't think of a rabbit raiser alive that doesn't dream of having a rabbitry full of KW advanced design cages, feeders, and nest boxes. That little blue nameplate with the KW bunny logo is exactly how I know those who are serious about their rabbits and doing well on the show tables. These are the highest quality cages you can get, and they've been around for 45 years. KW Cages has always been the industry leader in innovation, design, and highest quality craftsmanship right, made right here in the U.S. And right now, if you use the kwcages.com website and online store and use the code TheRabbitry, the promo code that is, on checkout for orders over $75, you can get $10 off. So again, make your orders at kwcages.com. And for orders over $75 by using the promo code the rabbitry you're going to save 10 bucks and if you're heading to the arb convention reno kw cages will be there so get your pre-orders in and uh, don't even have to worry about shipping because it'll arrive there at the convention ready for you to pick up and use throughout the week ahead since our episode this week is dedicated to the Harlequin breed, I wanted to start with a little history of the Harlequin standard. Um, we're going to start with the 9195 standard because there were some very significant changes to the breed that occurred after that. Probably most notably was that prior to 1996, Harlequins were actually judged by variety and then group, similarly to what Netherland Dwarfs are. Um, this is probably one of the first breeds that was actually put into groups Um after acceptance. So it used to be originally that you would judge black heart Japanese. You would pick best and best opposite black Japanese, and you would pick best and best opposite blue Japanese. And then all of those would compete for best and best opposite of the Japanese group. Um, and it was the same way with magpies. And after that standard, they were grouped where all Japanese showed together. They were best of group. All um, magpies showed together they were best of group. This was done because there was um, kind of a shortage of numbers and some of those colors and the standards committee wanted to ensure that all four varieties remained recognized and eligible to show, eligible to breed together um, to continue to improve the breed. Um, one of the other interesting differences was that Right now, and since 96, our standard has described a three-part front for the Harlequin. What that means is you want three alternations. 
The ears should be different colors. They should alternate with the face, which should be two different colors split down the middle. And that should alternate again with the chest, which is again split down the middle with the chest and the foreleg um, alternating with the face and then the face alternating with the ears. Uh, before that, there was also a four-part that was accepted. And that um, consisted of four alternations, the ears, the face, the chest, and then the front legs. Um, every once in a while, you will see um, a rabbit still with a four-part alternation, but I think that's something that was probably a little more difficult to achieve. Um, so that standard was um, revised to prefer that three-part pattern. Um, another interesting change was the disqualification for a split face. Previously, um, the disqualification was only for bald and dark face, which was defined as an absence of two colors on the head excluding the ears. And now the disqualification reads that there should be a clearly discernible parting line down the face and to disqualify for its absence, um, which sometimes we do um, still kind of see. And, you know, we see you know, maybe there's a little line on the nose, but it doesn't go clear up the face. Um, but that's something where the standard has been tightened up. So as always, standards are written for continuous quality improvement, but also, you know, reality and things that are actually able to be produced. Um, another big change across all breeds from the 91, 95 to the 96, 2000 standard was the addition of a minimum weight. It did not exist before that. And I have been told on good authority that certain Harlequin breeders were the impetus for this. Um, a breed with so many points on markings, breeders would bring them out when they were very, very young um, to get sweepstakes points. And this became an issue as they would come out again very very young probably younger than for you know the welfare of the animal and it wasn't all breeders but it was common enough that the standards committee decided you know i think for our own good for the animal's good and for a good perception to the outside world we need to implement a minimum weight and so that became the standard across the board in all breeds in 1996. That's a cool uh, history. And actually, I was I was kind of there during that time when the changes were are going underway in the Harlequin standard to uh, to group them out of instead of having in varieties, because my mentor in rabbits uh, growing up in Connecticut was a Harlequin breeder. And she was actually the president of the Harlequin club for a little while. So I used to go to national shows and I went to the Harlequin banquet a lot at conventions and and learned a lot about the breed. Man, they're so challenging, so tough. Um, and while they're I can't even imagine raising them, but because they're so hard, uh, it's often ominous. I think to those studying the standard with who don't have experience with the breed, they think, "Oh my gosh, it must be so many DQs to learn." And, and as you said, there's there's only two disqualifications. One is that lack of a parting line down the center of the face, and then uh, Dutch marking. So to study the breed, uh, maybe for a test or to learn more about them, it's it's actually not that challenging. It's it's I think it's more challenging to get the terminology right when you're when you're actually judging them and to um, you know to define orally how how they look and appear in front of you. Um, so a very cool breed. Yes, they are, and and as someone who has for my entire career raised marked breeds, <laughs> um, I would say yeah, I'm, I'm a little less intimidated by the challenge, but. And from what Rachel will tell us, there are certain things in Dutch that are a little easier to cement and other things that are totally random. But like with any breed, you know, people ask sometimes, well, what's an easy breed to raise? And, you know, I tell them, pick your passion. You know, every breed has something about it that's difficult, whether it's, you know, a dwarf breed. Sometimes it's difficult to get babies. You don't get very big litters and then you have to deal with peanuts. And, you know, that's not 
something I'm particularly willing to deal with. I've always raised breeds that were very easy breeders. You know, with marked breeds, you get mismarked rabbits, um, but you can tell pretty quickly for the most part. You know, if you breed something that's a butterfly breed, you're going to get solids and charlies. Um, You know, and if you raise a white rabbit, yeah, it's pretty easy to get something that doesn't have disqualifications, but sometimes it takes a lot longer to grow out those rabbits to know if you have something good. So they all have their challenges. And my advice to anyone is just find someone or something that lights your fire and, you know, you're more likely to overcome those challenges about something that you're really passionate about. Couldn't agree more. There's 50 breeds and there's something for everyone. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to go ahead and roll into our interview with Rachel about the Harlequin breed. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Glad to be here. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got started in rabbits and who some of your mentors were in the rabbit hobby? So I first was introduced to rabbits in 2013. Um, I was just finishing my 4-H. It was like my last year 4-H. And um, I had actually moved down to near Indianapolis where there was this small animal auction. (laughs) And um, one of my friends at the time had some meat rabbits. They had some New Zealands. And so I was like, oh, those are kind of cool. And my parents never really let us have small pets. So I was like, oh, man, I have a job. I have my own money now. So I would go to this little auction and there was a menagerie of, you know, mutt rabbits and meat rabbits and that kind of thing. And so I started off my first rabbit I ever bought was a um, Silver Martin Netherland Dwarf with very, very bad teeth. <laughs> but that's what got me started in rabbits in general. And then not long after that, I bought my first Harlequin from that auction. And it was a little Japanese buck. Um, and I've had them in my barn ever since. So what was it about Harlequins that caught your attention? Well, definitely the markings are very, very unique. Um, And at that time, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with rabbits in general. So having a rabbit that was visually easy to say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want, when you don't have a whole lot of experience as far as, you know, knowing type and, and fur condition and that kind of thing, when you're starting out, that was very easy for me to be like, okay, you know, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. And at the time they were actually listed on the unofficial rare breed list. This was before Arba had rare breed sanctions. Um, So that also drew me in because I was like, oh, you know, this is very unique in the fact that not a lot of people have them. And I would really like to help um, expand the numbers for this breed since there's not a whole lot of interest in them right now. So those two things are really what drew me into the rabbits. And then after I got more involved in joining the national club and those kind of things. Um, just the, the group of people that raise these rabbits are outstanding, so friendly and helpful. That really drew me in and the rabbits themselves are really, really friendly. So that always was a plus too. I have noticed that some of the shows that you guys set up a Harlequin corner. Almost every show that I go to where there's a couple of breeders, we all congregate in this little group. We even have a sign sometimes one of the girls will bring that says um, Harley Corner or something like that that we'll put on the wall. And we all just sit together with our rabbits and, you know, tote down the aisles to the table when we're called like a little train. 
So we do like candor on the podcast. So I will ask you this. I think a lot of people in rabbits are well aware that Harlequins are maybe kind of one of the Rodney Dangerfield breeds. Like they don't tend to get a lot of respect sometimes. Um, what is your take on that? Um, I, I feel that is true. Um, because out of all 50 breeds, um, we only have 10 points on type. And I feel like that kind of starts that right there because, you know, the type is all across the board. So when you look at most of the other breeds, when type is so important, and then you look at us, you know, I would say even 10 years ago, the type was all over the place. You know, you had some that looked like Flemish. And and so it was kind of a joke on the table. You know, as long as it's living and breathing, you know, you got points on type there. (laughs) So I think that's kind of what started it. But um, as a group of breeders, we're very easygoing when it comes to that kind of stuff. I mean, we raise Harlequins for for goodness sake, you know, we kind of have to have a sense of humor <laughs> with this breed because of all of the ups and downs when it comes to breeding and showing, you know, I was at a show last weekend and there was a couple rabbits that, you know, receive a first place in one show and you turn around and they're last place in the next show. So <laughs> you kind of just have to be able to go with the flow when you have these rabbits. A good sense of humor is always a good thing for a breeder to have. So Tell us a little bit about how you built your herd. Um, you rabbits have obviously become very competitive. Um, so what was that like? How did you get started? And, you know, what sort of breeding tips would you have? So I, I started out with those rabbits that I got from the auction, which weren't pedigreed and were very low quality. Um, but it, jump started me into the interest. And so when I started to become more serious into breeding, um, I joined the club and at the time they provided a membership list. Um, and so, uh, I would go in the sweeps standings and, you know, kind of see who was doing well at shows. And then I would reach out to those breeders and ask them if they had any stock available or if they had any tips for me. And they were all super, super welcoming. Um, one of the first people I reached out to, there's this little group of breeders that was going when I started here in Indiana, um, Beth Hale and Don Hershey. And at the time, Pam Granderson was still alive. She was a staple in the club for a very, very long time. I got to meet her a couple times before she passed away. But those girls really um, helped me at the very beginning because they were at all the shows I was at and they were very helpful in giving me tips about um, what to breed for and um, with any breed, when you're start, you start with the best that you can get. And at the time, you know, I had some not so typey, not so clean color animals, but you breed for the things you can control. And with these rabbits, since your markings don't necessarily breed true, um, I was always told that you breed for your color clarity and, um, your type, which there is only 10 points, but those are the things that you can get and control when you're doing your pairings and you're looking at offspring and things like that. And then the markings will come as you improve these other qualities. Um, one thing I do try and avoid is breeding a brood to a brood, um, without the face split. I find that creates more of the same, <laughs> But it's a lot of trial and error, especially with depending on where you're starting at, you know, now um, it's a little bit easier to find better quality to start with. 
since the breed has grown so much since I joined, um, our numbers have really risen the last couple of years and there's a lot of interest in the breed. So it is easier to find a little bit better starting stock depending on where you're at in the country. But um, no matter where you start, you always want to, you know, keep the next best thing when you're breeding for the things that you can control. So have you had a favorite Harlequin that you have raised? I do. Um, her name is Royal. Her tattoo is Royal Flush. Um, but she is definitely um, my favorite. She has a little bit of an attitude. She's not the nicest rabbit. <laughs> but um, she has definitely been the best that I've produced. And I feel like... Um, I will be very sad when I lose her someday, but hopefully she's not that old yet. So hopefully she has a long life ahead of her, but um, she did win me my very first best in show. Um, and so that was a really, really big moment for me as a breeder, but she's has her own little special spot in my rabbit tree and <laughs> she always goes to the shows with me. So <laughs> I think you're being kind of modest. I know she won more than just, one best in show. I know she's won a few <laughs> other awards as well. <laughs> the, she was a back-to-back um, national breed champion. Um, and she has taken best of opposite of group um, and best opposite of breed at the last convention. So she has won me quite a few awards. I think she's up to almost 40 grand champion legs right now. Um, and she's still showing. So Hopefully I can still, she's still um, having babies every now and then, but. <laughs> so what was it like winning a best in show with Harlequin? Oh my goodness. It, honestly, it's something I thought it would take me eons to accomplish um, because a lot of people don't take the rabbit seriously, but we as breeders have pushed so hard, especially these last few years to improve the quality of what we're seeing on the table and I feel, especially in um, color and type, we've taken leaps and bounds from where we were when I started. Um, and it's really paying off because you're seeing these bigger wins, um, not just with my rabbits. I know there was another breeder up in Minnesota who just took a reserve and show this year. So we're seeing across the board, people are taking us more seriously because of the quality improvement. But winning a best in show with a Harlow, I feel like everybody was shocked. <laughs> let alone me. I was, I was a little speechless at the time, but, and then she went on to win best of the best as well out of all of their shows. They, they chose at the end. And that was, I was crying for sure by the end of that day, but. <laughs> well, I was there. Um, I do. I had to leave before that best, the best, that was the rent had the snowstorm. Um, and it was my way. Um, but I did get to handle her that night and I know what I think. Um, but what do you think makes her so special and such a good show? Um, well, she was, a prime at that show. I would say she was an older junior. She hadn't been bred before. So she was still very firm in her flesh. Um, she had a really nice finish on her coat at that time. And when you have a decent body on a rabbit like that, it just really highlights those markings. And she does have all of the correct placement of the markings, um, as far as alternations and banding goes. And so when you have a decent body on a rabbit like that, it really just, you know, you look at that rabbit and you're like, wow, you know, this, you know, 
what is that saying? Uh, build the barn before you paint it. <laughs> so when you have a body on a rabbit like that, it really, really pops. Yes, it did. And I was going to say that was kind of my impression, why I was so impressed with her, the body, the condition, and then just all the markings, all the alternations, the ears, the face, the chest, uh, the feet alternating with each other. She's well marked overall. So she's really stunning. Um, so you mentioned that she'd had litters. Can you typically show a Harlequin after? Um, you can. The one nice thing about them only having that 10 points on body type is it gives them a really, really long show life. So where you look at smaller breeds where they DQ for dewlaps, which typically happens after you breed a doe, um, or you look at rabbits that have a lot of points on their fur condition, um, such as tans, um, their show life is really short because once you lose that prime coat, it's really hard to get it back. Whereas with Harlequins, they have, they do have points. There's 15 points on condition, um, and 10 points on fur and 10 points on type, but most of those markings, there's 60 points on markings alone. So you can still be very competitive, um, without that prime finish, whereas some of the other breeds, you really need that finish um, and condition to be competitive. But since there's so many points on these markings, I have, um, oh my goodness, six-year-old rabbits that are still winning on the table because they have the markings to do so. Well, that's really encouraging to someone maybe who has a smaller herd or, you know, doesn't turn rabbits over as quickly. Yes. And even with them being a marked breed, you don't necessarily have to have a lot of space to be able to be competitive with these guys. I know quite a few breeders who have 20 or less um, spots for these guys that are really do well on the show table because it makes you have to be more picky when it comes to what you're keeping back. So you see a bigger leaps and bounds because you're being so much more um picky when it comes to keeping things with good color and keeping things with good type. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have, you know, a hundred holes to be competitive with Harlequins. It, it really only takes, you know, 10 to 15 rabbits to um, have enough to keep producing good uh, show rabbits. So let's talk a little bit about just kind of the basics of keeping Harlequins. Um, what size cages do you recommend for singles and then does with litters? So I like to keep my juniors in at least 24 by 24 to give them that space to reach their full potential size. Um, but these are very, very laid back rabbits. They're not high energy like your running breeds. Um, they're not super, super big like a six class. We are a four class breed. So once they reach senior weight, um, I keep my bucks in 18 by 24. Um, I've never had any issues with them being crazy in that size. They're very, very lazy. They like to just lay down and relax. So I keep my, my senior bucks in 18 by 24s. Um, my senior does get 24 by 24s. And then when I have does that are going to Kindle, they go into either 30 by 24 or 36 by 24, because they, they do tend to have larger litters. What would you say that your average litter size is for Harlequins? I would say between six and eight. I've had as many as 14 before I have had 13 to 14 size litters before. It's not super common, but it does happen. Um, and then when you get older does, they tend to have a little less. But I would say average doe is six to eight babies. That's pretty prolific for a rabbit that's not all that big. Right. 
they they are very good mothers as well. So I really don't lose that many babies. Um, so I, I do my culling early because they have so many babies and they aren't huge. So I like to cull down really early to make sure that the babies that I'm wanting to grow out have the access to the milk. So what things do you look for in those initial culls, which I assume are mostly on markings because that's about all you can see at that age? Yes. So my first round, you and these are this is a breed that you can cull in the nest box. I don't personally do it that early, but I know there are many breeders because you can look at these babies when they're fresh and you, you see the markings right away. So I usually cull about three to four weeks when they're starting to jump out of the box. Um, but usually it's very obvious which ones I'm going to cull in that first round. Um, it's very, very heavy marked ones or very, very lightly marked ones. Um, or when you're looking at Japanese, if there's any with the obvious disqualifications, such as white spots, um, white toes, things like that, I will get rid of those right away. Um, Dutch marked ones don't pop up all that often. I probably only had a handful in the years that I've been breeding. Um, but all of those ones go first. Um, and then I like to get my litters down to about four or five, I feel like is a good amount um, as far as keeping that growth rate up. Um, so that first round is just, you know, basic. I'm looking at them. This is solid black. It goes, this is solid white. It goes. And then I get a little bit more picky on my next round, which is about five or six, five to seven weeks, just depending on when I can get to my coal buyer. Um, and then I'm looking at, do I want to sell this rabbit to somebody or am I keeping this rabbit? And if the answer is no to either one of those, then it goes in that next round. So then I'm getting a little bit more picky into, does it have markings um, or does it have really nice color quality? And it has to have one of those two things to be able to stay. And what size nest box do you use with Harley? Um, I use a medium size. There are a couple does that I have that are really large <laughs> that I get a bigger box for, but usually they fit in a, in a medium size box. And you said you had some does that are large. What is kind of the typical weight range for your herd? So it does vary a little bit. I do have some that are on that higher end. Um, the minimum weight for senior bucks is six and a half pounds. Minimum weight for senior does is seven pounds with your ideal being between seven and eight pounds, basically for seniors. Um, your maximum is nine and nine and a half respectively for your seniors. So I found that they usually stay within that range. There are some lines that stay, that grow a little slower. So they don't reach senior weight till closer to seven or eight months. Um, usually that only happens in the magpie lines, but, um, they stay right around that middle weight most of the time. That's nice. Um, what do you feed them? What percent protein do you use and do you use any supplements with them? I use just a general, um, 16 to 18% protein feed. Um, and I've fed that for a really, really long time and never had any issues. Um, I free feed my Harlequins, <laughs> um, especially the does on litters because they do have a little bit of a harder time coming back. Um, just because, you know, they're not a huge rabbit and they end up, you know, usually having decent sized litters. So it takes a lot out of the does. So, I free feed all my rabbits. I've really never had an issue with anybody going overweight. And then when you're breeding Harlequins, um, can you breed all the colors of Japanese and all the colors of Magbike together? Or how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so I 
don't really try and avoid any color pairings besides your lilac to your lilac because that can get you really, really washed out color. So you want to kind of avoid breeding dilutes together. Um, but if you breed a black in the next generation, usually it kind of corrects any fading that has happened. Um, but all of the groups you can breed, you can breed magpie to Japanese as well, but it can bring in that white spotting gene a little bit more because it doesn't show up on the magpies since they're a white base. So does the dilute to dilute breeding tend to wash out both the, like the blue and lilac color, or does it wash out the fawn color? On the Japanese, it tends to wash out the fawn color as well. So when you're already dealing with a dilute lilac color and a fawn color, and then you end up washing both out, then it kind of really, really muddles um, both of those colors and you get a really, really washed out color. So I try and avoid breeding those two together because I have seen that happen. And I know you've talked a little bit about markings and, you know, what is hereditary and what is not. What are some marking flaws that you would say are okay to keep for breeding? So personally, I really advocate for people to be open-minded when it comes to brood stock. Um, I've, I've personally raised all of the mark breeds with the exception of the dwarf papillon. I've had every single marked breed in my barn at some point. Um, and these are really the least, um, when, when it comes to passing down the marking traits, it's really kind of a shot in the dark. Um, there might be a few breeders out there that might argue with me on that. But in my experience, I've, you know, I've tried breeding same side to same side and it doesn't reproduce. So really it just comes down to those control factors with the breeding, which is that color and that type. So I try and avoid the bald face to the bald face because usually that does pass down, of course. But um, those brood animals can really, really be key in a program. When I look back at the pedigrees on my best rabbits that I've produced, there are brood animals in there. Um, and that can kind of mess up if you're, you know, your registration process, if you're trying to get that red, white, and blue registration, it can kind of throw a wrench in that. But um, if you're breeding just to get better animals, I really try and, and push people to be open to having a brood animal in there, whether that's to add type or color. Um, those can really be key animals in a program. So what are some um, notable traits of brood animals that you have brought in to kind of improve your rabbits? Um, I would say most of the brood animals that I have kept have been for color. Um, for example, I have a chocolate buck that I kept from a breeding that I did who has some of the richest chocolate color I have ever produced, but he has no face split at all. <laughs> so he doesn't get shown and he's not registered and all of that, but... His offspring have been really, really beautifully colored, and I he has produced showable offspring. So those kind of things, I I am more lenient on keeping a brood animal. Or if they have, say, no face and they have correct ears and a correct chest split, that is very redeemable in my eyes as far as earning your place in the barn. So what do you wish that judges knew about harlequins that that maybe is not in the standard um i feel like a lot of judges since maybe they haven't had harlequins in their barns 
previously. Um, just the difficulty level that we as breeders go through to get these animals that we're putting on the table is so extreme at times. You know, there's been times where I've done uh, 20 does over a couple weeks of breedings and I haven't kept anything. And it can get really disheartening at times when you have litter after litter of, you know, nothing that you think is worth keeping in your program. And then, you know, after all of that heartache, you finally get a couple that you feel are worth it that you're putting on the table. And, and so just having judges acknowledge the work that we as breeders have put in is, is a really big thing for us as breeders. Um, just the work behind the animals that we're presenting. I think that's fair enough. You know, everyone that's raising rabbits is working really hard. And as someone who's raised marked breeds my entire time in rabbits, I (laughs) I can definitely (laughs) echo that, you know, just sometimes getting something to have on the show table can be difficult. Um, What would you tell breeders who are maybe thinking about getting into Harlequins? Um, It is a rocky road, but it is definitely worth it. The community of the Harlequin breeders, um, the temperament of the rabbits, all of that stuff is amazing. So, you know, even though you might not be able to get a bunch of showable babies right off the bat, um, all of the breeders are really encouraging. The community is really strong. Um, and the rabbits themselves are, are really a joy to have um, in the barn. They're really sweet. Um, you, and it's like Christmas morning looking in the nest boxes because you'll never have two that look the same. So it's always exciting to have babies born, even if it's nothing you end up keeping. Um, there's always something new around the corner with these guys. I would say the same about Dutch. You know, it's a little <laughs> different than digging into a nest box of white rabbits. <laughs> Right. Right. So one last question. This is one we ask of all of our guests. Describe for us your perfect rabbit show. Well, it would definitely be filled with Harlequin breeders all in our little group and having a good judge that appreciates the breed and likes to joke around with us because we love to talk at the table Um, and just having a, a really really great group of people showing these rabbits. Wonderful. Well, I think that that's another thing that kind of goes for everybody in any breed, just fun and fellowship and good judging. Yes, for sure. Brian, that was a great interview with Rachel. I loved hearing her, her story and her, her determination. I mean, she's been very successful with the breed and uh, I think she's worked really hard to, uh, you know, really cement some seriousness amongst not only other breeders, but but judges across the country too. It's, she's done a lot of work and it was a great interview to, to hear from her perspective. I'm going to read a little bit of breed history from the Bob Whitman book, History of Domestic Rabbits on the breed, which is actually quite old. And they've got a, an interesting European background. And despite the variety that we know and uh, we call Japanese, it doesn't mean that they actually originated in Japan. So here it goes. Harlequins are said to be native to France, or they could have actually come from Japan, but there's some speculation there. In 1894, Mr. Nadin from the French publication Avicolu Review said, We saw appearing at the time of the open competition in 1887 in the class of common rabbits, a variety which had excited curiosity. They were tricolor, 
and bore the Japanese name. It was believed that the first Japanese appeared in the suburbs of Paris and either Belleville or Montmartre from the old world Brabancon breed, no idea what that is, which is the forerunner of the Dutch and common tame rabbits. In France's Hunting and Fishing 1894 and 1895 periodical, a writer wrote of the Japanese, let us not manage we from there to discover the very recent origin of this rabbit very common, but multicolored the made to order of the tricolor cat or scale of tortoise in English tortoiseshell. We know that this color is obtained by the crossing of black rabbits with the russet red one. Wouldn't the joke, wouldn't the joker who at first launched as Japanese like to be the rather pleasant to make known himself? The amateurs could then address their congratulations to him. Uh, Bob Whitman goes on to say proof is shown that party colored and tricolored rabbits were being bred and exhibited in Japan during the years of 1872 to 1874. The keeping of these rabbits was particularly popular in the cities of Osaka and Tokyo. This was the ending of the Edo period and the beginning of the Meiji period in Japan's history. Many rabbit shows were being held for the party colored and calico rabbits. The calico rabbits were highly esteemed for their colors and patterns, just as the beautiful fish, the ornamental carp, known as koi. The calicos would fetch extremely high prices for a fine mark specimen and would sell for as much as a house. <laughs> as the rabbit trade increased, serious problems arose with so much crime taking place because of these unique rabbits that the Tokyo government had to establish laws which required a rabbit keeper to notify the authorities of their dealings and to once a month pay a one yen tax per rabbit these new harsh regulations would cause the demise of the rabbit fancy in japan there exists a three-piece multicolored woodblock print from 1873 created by uchigawa yoshitsu the second entitled ryuku usagi shukai zu i guess i should have practiced my japanese before i started reading this uh which translates rabbit show exhibition list the show's a great many rabbits, both party-colored and tricolored, which would prove the existence of these rabbits during this time period in Japan. Perhaps there is indeed some true meaning to the origin of the name, once called Japanese by the British and Americans. It was also during this period in Japan in the 1800s that resumed trade and diplomatic relationships with the Western countries. Could these rabbits have been brought into France and released on the estates for the amusement of pleasure of the landowners? Bob asks. Anyway pretty interesting history um still some speculation as to where they originated whether it was in japan or, or france but maybe both who knows yeah that is fascinating and and i always like to hear that a little bit of dutch made it into a brief <laughs> you would appreciate that <laughs> yes yes well, indeed we'd like to remind everyone again that the rabbitry on facebook continues to serve as our hub each and every week for the best in show podcast we are at episode 43 we've had so many great interviews with judges and breeders from across the country and world all links to those previous episodes are on the rabbitry page so check it out like it share it tell your friends about it and of course whether you listen to the best in show podcast on apple spotify google or audible we are on it your five-star reviews and comments mean the world to us and helps us gain some relevance across the podcast industry where there are millions of options and if we can use this podcast to get more people involved and uh, breeding rabbits and cavies let's do it that sounds great and as we like to end every episode with a quote, Alan, I think you found a particularly relevant one for this topic. I sure did. And it's by the very cute Zac Efron. He says, 
I'm very competitive by nature, and I like being the underdog. It's the best way to win, to come from behind and win is a great feeling. It's not a real philosophical quote, but for this episode, I think that uh, the underdog and the Harlequin Breeders, it's, it's, a, it's a special nod to them. I think so too. As always, thank you for joining us. And until next time, talk rabbits and talk cavies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net. Thank you.